to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here we see something really cool. He's actually kind of pulling a page right out of Joab's playbook as he says this because he's contrasting forgetting with straining. Okay? Forgetting with straining. I'm going to explain what I mean, but he is defining what Christian maturity means right here in Philippians. He says that Christian maturity is to abandon and to press, to forget but to strain, to leave behind but also to look forward. And let me explain what he means when he says forgetting. Let's just take that word out of that dichotomy just for a moment. Forgetting does not mean, let me just say what it doesn't mean. It does not mean ignoring or choosing not to recollect where you came from or your past or facts about who you are or how you even got to where you are right now. It doesn't mean that at all. I mean, Paul never did that. In fact, we see Paul doing the opposite. We see Paul always riffing on who he was before Jesus and where he came from and what made up his life. We see him doing that all the time. What he's talking about here is forgetting the guilt that came with your past sins and crime. The sleaze and the, and the griminess that kind of followed you towards the cross but stopped at the cross. He's saying you could forget about that stuff. All the condemnation that kind of haunted you and was one half step behind you, you can forget about that. And you can also forget about the achievements that you've been able to collect over time. The degrees, the accomplishments, all the things that you would stack up and say, look how good and righteous that I am. He's saying you could forget about all of that, right? Whether you have skeletons in your closet or you have a trophy case in your closet, Paul is saying don't let that alter how you grow and go forward. He's standing on the gospel here. He's saying the gospel defines us, not our past, whether our past was good or bad. We forget it. It does not establish us before God. So Paul wouldn't let anything from his past paralyze him in terms of how he wanted to chase God in the future. Every day was a new day for him. This is hard, though, isn't it? And by the way, it's only possible with the gospel. It's hard to not have your past try to define your future. I mean, the calendars of therapists and counselors, they are bloated with people that are walking because their past has done so much to define who they are now and possibly where they're headed. Now, where the gospel is concerned, that resets how God sees us, therefore it should reset how we see ourselves, okay? So the gospel makes this true. The gospel is the only thing that allows us to forget. The gospel is God's way of resetting how he sees us and how we see ourselves. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll put this up on the screen, don't turn there because I'm reading out of the J.B. Phillips he says, for if a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become new and fresh. This is valuable for many of us. For some of us who are in this room now, just the thought of your past not following you into new life is refreshing. Because of some of the things that you've said, thought, and have done. They carry so much shame that you, 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 you don't even want to tell anybody, maybe even your spouse. In fact, you don't even like the way you feel when you even think about it. Just remembering it draws so much condemnation out of the past. So something like this, where we are told that because of what God has done for us, we are actually a new creation, it's almost too good to believe. It's almost too good to be true. 
But this is the power of what God has done for us. And it actually, you could flip it and say, if you were to show up here today with a long list of achievements and a long list of moral actions and good behavior, a lot of trophies in life, that doesn't establish you either. The past is finished and gone, Paul says. Everything has become new and fresh. So I'm making a big deal of this to just show you for our purposes today that forgetting When he says forgetting, it does not mean to stop taking a good, hard assessment and honest look at your life and how you got there. It does not mean that. It just means allowing the gospel to speak into who you are as your value, as how God sees you, as he prizes you, as he chases you. That is what's going on in this passage. And so if we were to move from forgetting to that second word that he uses in Philippians, which is straining, we get another interesting word. This word straining, it, it just means pressing towards God in such a way that you see him face to face. In this passage, Philippians specifically, I do believe Paul is talking about the resurrection, just literally seeing Jesus face to face. Literally having such an intimate proximity where he's toe to toe with his hero. And the reason I get that is because if you look downstream from that passage and pick it up in the 20th verse, of Philippians. He goes on and says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. So you see, Paul's ultimate goal was to be home with Jesus. That was his goal. That was the finish line for him, standing so close, inhabiting the same space of Jesus giving him hospitality and them just seeing each other eye to eye. That was the goal. But with that in mind, with that as his prize, it spurred him into pressing and straining, not slacking off. I don't see a lot of accidental living coming out of Paul's life. And he knew this was going to happen to him. He knows and is just resolute that God will be God. And that he could be trusted. And still he says, strain and press and fight and dig. I love this passage for this time of year because it speaks to how we orient ourselves and handle what is behind us. And it speaks to how we orient ourselves and handle what is in front of us. Because listen, that's what the culture's doing right now. And we as a church, we get an opportunity to redeem this. Yeah, we get an opportunity to redeem this because it's the end of the year. So people are really taking a hard look at their past, except for for people who are very far from Jesus and don't love Jesus, their past is defining them. There's no reset button. There's nothing that says you are valuable and you do belong. So their life will become an act of trying to belong and trying to be valuable. So their past will define them. If it was a good past, they will use it to stand on and show self-righteousness. If it was a poor past, it's going to follow them as well. And when they set goals, it won't be a Christ-centered goal either. It will be a goal that elevates self. So the culture's already doing what we're talking about. The culture away from Jesus is always anxious to change. But we have a chance as a church to show a world at large what it looks like to set redeemed goals and to work. You know, January... This is not true for all scholars, but the conventional way of looking at January is that it was named after an old mythological Greek god called Janus, J-A-N-U-S. And so Janus, um, I think the, the, the word in Latin means door. 
Janus was the mythological god of doorways, endings and beginnings, passageways, gates, transitions. Janus was the god of transitions. That's why if you were to just Google image his name, what you will see is a god with two heads, one looking forward and one looking back. It's interesting how some of that carries over into our current culture today, because now is when you start seeing all the top 10 lists of the year. Top 10 memes and gifts. Gifts, not gifs, it's gifts. Top 10 one-handed catches in the end zone. Top 10 celebrity meltdowns. Top 10 parkour fails. Top 10 whatever you want. Now is when we're doing it because we have 365 days to cull together and develop the best of the year. Now is when you're also starting to see all the new resolutions for the next year, are you not? How to have a new you. How to, I don't know, read more books, lose weight, look different, sound different. This could be your year. Culture loves this time of year, but because Janus is a false god, many people think that even the act of setting a resolution is really a pagan act following after a pagan god. And this is where I think the church can redeem it. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we took a long amount of time to talk about how the church should, should appropriate little bits and pieces of culture. There are some pieces of culture that the church should just flat out reject. There is no such thing as God glorifying pornography or drunkenness or anything like that. There's some aspects and, I don't know, facets of culture that we just, as a church, we have to say no to because of what God has done in our lives and because of what is holy and what is not holy then there are some things that we can just receive because there's really nothing wrong with it at all. We don't have to press it through some filter. You want to go hiking? Go hiking. You don't have to redeem that or reject that, right? You want to eat kale? Go and eat you some kale. You can just receive it. But then there are some things we have to redeem. The reason we brought that up during Christmas time is because there are heavy aspects that require redemption when it comes to Christmas. But is this no different? This is no different. We have an opportunity as a church at large to redeem this process of looking back, seeing what has happened in our lives, looking forward and seeing how we can strain for our good and for God's glory. We have an opportunity to lay down tracks before us and make a plan where the rest of the world, or at least six out of ten people, are attempting to do the very same thing, lay down tracks and change. We could plan to the best of our abilities how to be strenuous this next year. We can make goals to the glory of God. We can be intentional and we can rest. And the good news is God is going to do as he sees fit. Here's my big question for you. Maybe more than one question. How do you plan, underline that word, how do you plan on enjoying Jesus more in 2018 than in 2017? How do you plan to do that? How do you plan to nurture your affections for God in this next year compared to what you did? Let me break it down and maybe make it more sizable. How do you plan to understand, love, and be able to be fluent in the good news that is the gospel for mankind through the person of Jesus? How do you plan to be more intentional in nurturing of the community of God around you? Because some of us aren't very good at that. How do you plan on being a better missionary to the city and to the broken culture around you as compared to where you were last year? How do you plan to do that? And then what does strenuous looks like? What, what does it look like? 
And then an even more important question, the most important question, why? Why? Why is that a goal? Why is that a plan for you? You see, the, the big ingredients that we need for a solid plan, it starts off with an honest audit. An audit, a self-assessment of just looking at our life, looking at the mirror and saying, this is who I am and this is why I got here. But then there's also a component to setting a solid plan where we just have humble prayer and meditation. The why and the motives behind our desire to change. And then to go forward, it's just setting an intelligent goal. I'm gonna try to hit these fast, okay? And I guess maybe just to play it out, make it make more sense, I mean, we live in an age of wearable activity trackers, right? Most of you in here probably have one. I've got one. I've got a Garmin. They're kind of the Cadillac of activity trackers, and I love it because I'm a little bit of a nerd about it. It tells me everything. It tells me my heart rate, resting average, tells me my heart rate variability, my lactate threshold, my morning stress level, my stride length. It tells me everything. It tells me stuff I never knew about myself in all kinds of detail. It'll give it to me in a chart. It'll make a nice little pie chart. It'll make a little graph with lines and everything, all these bells and whistles, but it gives me data. It feeds me data. And then I have an idea of where I want to go. So I have two big components right now of what it takes to build an effective goal and an effective plan. Wouldn't it be cool if we had an activity tracker for our spiritual life? Like how many offenses have you carried in your life this year compared to last year? Because the numbers don't lie. What if we had something that could really track that down, right? Maybe your eyes, the stuff you've looked at. What if that could be tracked? How about the motivations of your heart? Now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't know if that would be very much fun at all. <laughs> I might leave that one on the shelf. But we can't intuit where we're at, right? And then we always have the fruit around us to tell us where exactly we are. But before we go to the process of just developing goals, like I want to read more books this year, I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to gain 10 pounds, before we go and talk about how much we want to pray a little bit more, give more money to the church or things like that, I think the most valuable question we can ask is why? What is behind the goal? What is behind the plan? Statistics will tell you that the top two goals that Christians set at the beginning of every year are, you guessed it, the same one that's on six out of ten of your lists right now, which is to, I want to read the Bible more and I want to pray more. That one never leaves our list, does it? That's a permanent fixture. I think it's on mine, too. I mean, no one gets to January 1st and says, you know what, I'm going to throttle back on the Bible reading a little bit. I really overdid it last year. Or you know what, this prayer thing, I mean, I tried it, it was all right, but I might just do like 20% less and make room for other things. Nobody does that. Nobody has ever done that. Those are the top two things. But aren't there more? Your mouth, your eyes, your wallet, pornography, being a better parent, I mean, the list is absolutely endless. But why? Why that goal? Why do you want to change there? What does straining look like once you've decided why? Some of you are a little bit more harder to convince than others, so there's a second passage I was ready to bring to just you, and that is in 2 Peter. Different guy, not Paul, but Peter. Peter is speaking, 
in uh, the first chapter, verse 5. It'll be up on the screen. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement, and I'm going to count these for us, your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, here it is, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful. That is our activity tracker right there. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is a huge passage. There's a lot that could be pulled out of this. We're, we're going to just barely do it justice, but I will tell you as a side note, those eight qualities that were just counted... I think a traditional way that's, that that's been read is that one builds on another and then the third builds on the second and they just continually build. That's not how you're supposed to read that. You're, you're, you're meant to read that as if it's a tree with eight branches and they all just kind of grow at the same time. What's being used here is a poetic device. It was used a lot in that day. It's actually used several other times in the New Testament. But what Peter is saying right here, what you need to grab is if you're not maturing, you're forgetting. If you're not increasing in these things, you have amnesia. You are forgetting what God has done for you. If you're not cooperating with God as you strain and rest in him and you see growth, if that's not happening, you have lost touch with what the gospel has done, with what that really means. It's slipping away. There's others who agree with Paul and Peter, John does as well. In 1 John 1, 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So Peter talks about how we were cleansed from former sins. But then John go ahead, and he says that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Not just clean, but clean by something of value, the blood of Jesus. So if we were to put those together, we see that Jesus cleans us with his blood, and our response mature and increase in godly qualities. In other words, we grow as a disciple. We grow in our discipleship. Paul continues to talk. He says to Titus, the Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous. I mean, if we just pull all these strings together, and really look at what's going on. Jesus' blood is cleansing you and me as Christians. And he's taking this heart of stone out of our chest upon doing that. And this is a, a hard heart that can't respond, that doesn't feel, and replaces it with a heart of flesh that can feel and can respond. And what is our response to such a beautiful sacrifice? It's to grow. It's to not slack. It's to not just live accidentally, but to have a plan, even a loose one, to have some goals. But is there any truth at all to letting just God do whatever he wants to do? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely there is. I mean, in Galatians, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. That just simply means that it's God himself who keeps us from sinning. It's God himself who keeps us from sinning. And causes us to grow. So if this is the year that you finally figure out how to have a devotional time and sit at Jesus' feet and just love the words that come out of his mouth and you fill up a journal and then another journal and then another journal and you high-five yourself because you're like, this is the year of the devotional for me. I mean, man, I feel so... You could thank Jesus for that. You could thank God he's doing that through you. 
right? If this is the year that you put down pornography or some addiction like that, and you're like, wow, I'm a new person. I've never been able to put this down, and God has done something beautiful. You could, you could thank God for that. He is the one that is allowing you to put down sin and pick up growth. We also see this in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It reads... It reads a certain way to where you think in your mind, what does he mean when he says that? He means what he says when he says that. The, how it sounds is what he means. God knows beforehand where you're going to need courage. And he's actually engineered you to succeed. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, and those good works were designed, not just allowed, they were designed since before a star was ever cast into the universe. Now, this does, not mean that when you, this does not mean that when those times come, you do a good work for God. That means that when these times come, God does a good work through you. It is God doing the good works. This is important. There is truth to the fact that you can only grow and make progress as much as God allows. Throw as much sweat, blood, and toil behind it. You're only going to grow as much as God puts in the plan for you to grow. Because God's God, and he's sovereign, and he's big. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, who I referenced earlier, he is the one that penned all 70 of his resolutions. He did that as a young man, too. You should go back and read them, because some of them I read, and I'm thinking, whoa, I need to add that to my collection. That's a good one, you know? And then some I read, and I think, come on, that's easy. That's a chip shot. You should have come up with something a little bit more aggressive than that. But it's an interesting just diversity of different resolutions. But before he even gets into the first one, he's got a little bit of a prologue, like three sentences. And this is what he says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So no matter how much resolve and discipline you throw at your lives, you cannot do anything apart from the grace of God in you. Take a good look at where you are in life right now, where you stand today. That is by result of how strenuously you've lived to this point. And, and you are where you are by God's grace. Both are true. You are where you are because of what God has done, and you are where you are because of what you have done. And both are true. And so how do we take that little piece of doctrine and make it workable for us in the future? How do we apply something like that? You courageously and strenuously grow, and then you just rest and relax that God is going to be God. You could be satisfied in that. Matt Norman, in his book Foreign, he says this, our striving is supposed to look like that of a top-conditioned athlete going for nothing short of first prize. That is what God tells us is supposed to be the look and the feel of our lives. It's going to look like white-knuckling. It's going to look like hard effort. Yet... We work hard restfully, meaning we do not strive out of fear, but out of joy and a restful, satisfied heart. That's how they cooperate. That's how they work together. That's how they work together. So how do we move forward? How do we rest in God's will? How do we set a redeemed goal? And I keep using the word redeemed, and I'm doing that for a reason, right? Because you could set goals that are not very redeemed, they don't really nuance God's work for you inside of them, right? 
It might be like, I just want to look a little bit better. I want to sound a little bit smarter. I want to advance my professional career. There are things that you could come up with that are goals, maybe even end up being smart goals in, in how you carry them out, but they might not be redeemed goals. A redeemed goal is one that ends with you enjoying Jesus more and reflecting his glory. That's where all redeemed goals land. Enjoying him more and reflecting his glory. In other words, our redeemed goals are going to be Christ-focused and gospel-driven. They cannot be self-focused and self-driven. Right? This is important for us because the world at large without Jesus is good at setting resolutions. Like we said, six out of ten are doing it, setting resolutions. But they will always be for capricious reasons or shallow reasons that will have self in the center. And the main thing that the world at large, and I was one, the main thing that the world at large is interested in when it comes to setting a goal or a resolution is the end product. Just what you look like in the end. right? The motive doesn't matter. Just the finished product. And that's where we can redeem it. You see, it'd be odd for you to come up to a neighbor or a coworker and listen to them give you a resolution and then start quizzing them on their motivations. That's how foreign it is to them. So that's how foreign it would have been to me if they were to say, hey, listen, I just want to lose 15 pounds this year. This is my year. I'm going to go on this diet. I got, I got a, a membership at Gold's. I'm going to make it happen. 2018 is my year. I'm going to lose 15 pounds. If you were to hear that and go, wow, so what's underneath that? What's underneath that resolution? Like, what's the why behind that? Explain that to me. That would be weird and awkward and maybe a bit rude. They would think, why do I need a motive? I mean, I just want to do that. Or if I just want to read more books, you know? I mean, I haven't read books since like high school or college. I'm, I've, re I've read like two since then. I want to read, I'm going to get in a book club. I'm going to do like a book a month for the next 12 months. What if you were to stop then and say, okay, but why? Why would you do I mean, that would be odd and awkward. For the world, without Jesus, the finished product is the most important part. But for the Christian, the why is the most important part. Not the finished product. You can miss that by a mile. You can miss that by a mile. 49 resolutions I had this last year, as I said in the beginning. I only got to click nine of them. I failed at 40 of them. But it wasn't a total failure. I almost hit the mark in like 15 of them, and I got halfway on some of them. But the, the why in there, I was really attentive to why did I want these goals, and what did that strenuous activity develop over time? Let me give you an example. Some of you are already looking forward to a new year of reading your Bible and praying. And maybe a goal for you is I'm going to do it every day, whether it's one minute or an hour. This is the year, 365 moments of sitting at Jesus' feet. And that's a good and noble goal. And the end product will be impressive. But you might be straining in order to prove yourself to God. And maybe if you could just put 365 days of praying and reading together, maybe he'll hate you less or tolerate you more or maybe give you more opportunity or stop taking things from you or make your days a little bit better, or make your wildest dreams come true. And if you're doing that, it might be a noble goal for a very cracked and carnal reason. What about losing weight and reading more? There ain't nothing wrong with losing or gaining weight. Go for it. Read some books, good books out there. I got a long list I could give you, great books out there. Do it. 
unless your motive is just to prove yourself to others. Now it's cracked. Good goal, not such a great reason. What about smoking? I want to stop smoking. I want to start working out, right? It's a good goal. If you want to stop smoking, stop smoking. You want to go to, go to the gym or work out, or go, it's fine, unless you're trying to prove yourself to yourself, where you just don't want to be mastered by anything anymore, where you want to show yourself that you are above addictions and you are above those things that have been just grabbing at your heels. You see, in many cases, our resolutions won't be cracked, just the motives underneath them. This is where I feel like the goal setting can be redeemed. Redeemed goals aren't just Christian in look and feel. Redeemed goals are Christian in motivation. In motivation, right? So if I were to tie a bow on this real quick and just throw a smattering of application. And by the way, because I do this every year, you could go on our website under the blogs I teach how to set smart goals and intelligent goals and things like that in the blogs. And I think like the last two or three years are there. You can just go find them. And we do do like a five or a six week class on this. The, the name of the class is How to Change. And we're actually probably going to launch that thing maybe in February it looks like. So, I mean, w- w- there, there is a time to go really deep into this and to be helpful. I'm probably not going to do all of that right here. I'm going to zoom the lens out a little bit, Okay. Because I think one of the biggest steps we could take in setting a redeemed goal is just being honest with ourselves. Where are you at? What have you refused to believe? Where have you just refused to grow in the past? When you look in the mirror and you just don't like what you see, why? What got you there? And listen, be as specific as possible. Be as specific as possible. Whenever you see the areas of your life that you want to see changed. Don't just be general about it. What is bothering you most about that? Let me give you an example. I mean, what if it was, uh, I don't know, you want to veg out less. I mean, the average American is what, between four and five hours now of media consumption a day? That used to just be TV, but now that you want to just throw media in general, it's between four and five hours. Right. Let's just say four, just to be generous. That's time on YouTube. That's time consuming any kind of media, TV, anything, right? Four hours, and you just want to bump it down to one hour. I just want to bump it down. Man, I'm spending too much time. I mean, what is that, three? Conservatively, it's about 1,000 extra hours a year, conservatively. I think of what I could do with 1,000 hours. You could do a lot with 1,000 hours, too, by the way. But I just, I'm so sick and tired of just, just media. I just want to change media. That's not specific enough. How do you want to change it? Why do you want to change it? Why do you want to change that? What has gotten you to where you're at right now? Why, and this is what I mean when I mean specific, why are you even involved in that much media anyway? Something is going on inside to provoke that. If you just take media away, you'll stick something else there. There's something underneath that. Maybe your life is tough. Maybe work stinks. Maybe family stinks. Maybe you just don't know what you want to do with your life and you're aimless. And so the only thing that you can do to get any respite of all the the turbulence is just to watch a few episodes of whatever and just sit and just veg. Now we're getting somewhere. That's more specific. That's more specific. You see what I'm talking about when I say a hard, honest audit of what's going on? It's got to look a little bit more impressive than just, I want to watch TV less. Great. Why? Why? 
You see, the truth is, is there's comfort already waiting for you. God has already provided comfort to the Christian because of what he has done for us in the person of Jesus. Now, if you're going to get it from media, instead of getting that from God as your source, then there's a problem. There's a problem. You have to be specific. You have to ask why. I think another step would just be on meditating and prayerfully considering how you're going to get through this next season. So how do we take the why and the what, and how do we make it go forward, right? I think traditionally, this is what I've seen in the past when I've worked with other people who've wanted to grow. Let's uh, say pornography is the example, right? I just want to drop pornography this year. What they will do is they will go and write down or type out all 490 passages that have anything to do with love, eyes, lust, pornography, naked people, whatever you want to put on there. They got this big, long roster of everything that has to do anything with pornography, and then they memorize it. They're going to memorize that list because if they could just increase their knowledge, then certainly they can beat this thing. And, and, the, and the ascetic act of going through that much trouble makes us feel like we're really growing in something. But what if... On top of just increasing your knowledge, you nurtured your heart as well. Because if pornography or um, just vegging out on media is really what you're after, then maybe comfort needs to be something that you address. Maybe instead of just drawing out passages that have to do with things like comfort or pornography, maybe it needs to be something like how God comforts us. That way you're finding passages to cling to, not just that are facts about God, but are something that brings our affections towards God. You know, I could be an overworker as an example. And so I, every year I want to work a little bit less inside. Now when I say work a little bit less, I'm not trying to whittle my way down to 15 hours a week or anything, but I work behind my work, if you know what I'm saying. I work a full, a full load, but I'm trying to get things behind the work. So it would be one thing for me to just develop a lot of scriptures on work and what God thinks about work and how work works and all that stuff. That would be one thing. But whenever Jesus says, come to me all who are weary, come to me all who are broken and tired, that does something to my heart. That's a form of meditation that I develop in the beginning of the year to help me through the year as I strenuously apply myself to that goal. I have to have passages like that. Because whenever I'm tempted to overwork, I just remind myself of what it says in Matthew when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary. And that's when I shut the laptop lid and I push away from the desk and I say, I can rest in you. I don't have to rest in that job being done. I don't have to rest in putting in X amount of hours. I could rest in you. You know, and I think the last, the last step is just what is a realistic measure or a way that you can intelligently track growth over a spread of time? This is just what's called a SMART goal, right? It's super plain vanilla. If you've never heard one, like I said, you never heard anything like that, you go back and look at those blogs or you could probably just Google SMART goal and it will tell you how to do it. But just discern, is there a way to measure what strenuous movement looks like? Is it specific? Is it measurable, accountable, attainable, realistic, time-bound, trackable? What kind of goal is it? How are you even going to know if you're doing a good job at it? How can you invite people into it? That's how you take just a raw, I want to change, and you turn it into something that's got legs with it. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. For your ability to enjoy Jesus more and reflect his glory at the same time. I gotta get out of this. Go ahead and stand with me. I could I could talk on this all day. This is a
fun topic for me. I'd like us to worship instead. I will say that Jesus does show us what it looks like to live strenuously and zealously for good works. We don't have to guess at that. We see what it looks like. We're called to live the same way by the same Holy Spirit that was alive and leading and empowering Jesus at that time. You know, as we sing and as we pray and as we meditate on what God is doing in this last year by the power of his gospel and what he will do in this next year by the power of the gospel, communion is an exceptional element to rally around, which is what we'll have in the back behind everybody that you could take communion because that's a place where we rest confidently that God is God and God will do what God wants to do. We could rest. Jesus worked. He was strenuous. He was strenuous and restful. And because of his work, his hard, zealous work, we don't have to work anymore to impress God. Jesus was impressive enough. And so that Sabbath meal is is a meal of just remembrance, and it's a meal of resting. It's a meal of not having a frenetic spirit inside, trying to impress God, because Jesus has been plenty impressive. So we can rest. We're a Sabbath people. I love how Jesus says, remember, whenever you take this, do it in remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget, as we just saw. We forget, we get amnesia of what the gospel has done. So as you increase and mature in this next year, we do it in remembrance of what God has done for us, not an application for what he can do for us, but in remembrance of what he has done for us. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us, and I thank you for this new year. I've enjoyed this year. I've enjoyed seeing where your good news has set me free and set others in this room free. I've enjoyed having my affections nurtured for you. I love you more now than I did last year. Now, Father, I worked really hard, but you did all of that at the same time. You did it all. I pray that as a church, as we sit down and maybe dream out over the next month, as we dream out goals and plans just for how we could become disciples, that we would do so with all of our might and strength and courage, but at the same time rest, knowing that as we employ our our deepest resources, you yourself will do what sees fit to you. And that's beautiful for us, and we trust your plan. Lord, help us be a a church of disciples that love each other and love the city. Help us be a church of disciples that love your gospel and can apply it to ourselves and those around us. We're very thankful for you. Thank you for this year. We thank you for 2017 and all the beautiful things you've done for this church in 2017. Thank you for all of just the beautiful moments where I have just one of many to see your gospel come alive in people and change people's lives defeat sin, impact growth. I'm just so excited to see that. And I thank you for another year headed our way. You're such a good God. You're so noble and kind to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
of it like radiant diamonds bursting inside us we cannot contain your love will Like blazing wildfire Singing your name God of mercy Sweet love of mine I have surrendered To your design This offering stretch across the skies, these hallelujahs be multiplied. Singing your name 